This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. I'm joined today by Peter Pomerantza, who is a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University, and also a fellow at the London School of Economics. He is the author of This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, and Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. He is also probably one of the single most important experts on countering Russian disinformation in the world. So with that, welcome, Peter. Okay. All right. What a strange reputation, but uh, thank you. (laughs) Well, it's unique, but it's necessary. So, you know, as we know, Russia's war against Ukraine isn't just a kinetic war, right, where soldiers fire on one another. It's an information war for the hearts and minds of global citizens. And we've heard a lot about Ukrainian successes on this front, but Russia still appears to be a pretty clear frontrunner, I think, in the eyes of much of the global south, parts of the east, and so forth. I wonder if you could kind of give us a broad overview. What's your sense of the state of play here? So I think you set a really good horizon there for us, because often we only think in a very limited way about Europe and the US, when actually there's a much bigger world out there. Russia's specious claim is that it doesn't care about Europe and the US anymore, that it envisions a future where its new best friends are, well, China, obviously, but sort of South Africa, Brazil in some ways, and others. And so it's basically its argument is that they, they don't care what we think. They're at war with us. Why should they care what we think? They're building a global alliance. And it is true that their messages are doing very well in those regions. They always have. They understand the audiences there quite well. They always have. Traditionally, both Russian diplomacy and Russian propaganda really has long-term expertise in different regions in a way that we really don't. So they kind of know what they're doing. And, you know, whether they really don't care about public opinion in Europe and the US, whether they really have abandoned any kind of sort of like future relationships, I'm less certain, because of course, they're also working very, very hard in Europe. You know, they have friends coming to power in Italy, they have an ally in Hungary, they have quasi allies in Bulgaria. And, you know, of course, their dream was and always will be to to cleave Europe away from America, and to have a continent where they feel at ease and powerful. So I don't think they have abandoned Europe, I think they're still working away, but obviously with a lot less success than they did before February. How concerned should we be about Russia's successes in, you know, those parts of the world outside of Europe and the U.S.? Well, if I'm Ukraine, what I'm thinking about now is how to prioritize my concerns. What do I really, 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 really care about? And let's talk about Europe, because at the end of the day, Europe is very, very important in America. Those are the main allies in terms of providing military support and kind of diplomatic support to Ukraine's more kind of like steadfast positions. So I think the things that I would be looking for are not even so much what I would call straight up information concerns. They're more to do with with real, you know, non-informational things like energy and cost of living. In Europe, Russia's passed from just pure narrative games to really just saying, you know, if this war continues, it's going to really cost you in Europe. And we don't think you're prepared for that. This is where it does become a narrative game in the sense that what Russia is teeing up and also, to be frank, what is being teed up by their own, by governments in Europe, is a very false kind of balance and equivalence, which pushes cost of living and gas prices on one arm of the balance and the other one, how much do we care about Ukraine? And it's like, "Mm, how much of a gas price rise can we take in order to help these poor little Ukrainians? 
Now, that's a very, very bad balance. It's one the Russians push as well. They're trying to get people to frame the argument in this way, but it's coming internally as well. It's coming from mainstream politicians like Schultz and many others who have concerns about elections. I think that's a very bad framing. This is where we do get into narrative. I think the framing should be Russia is an abusive partner. And as long as we're dependent on Russia, we in Europe are humiliated by Russia. We're broken. I think a lot of countries, people don't want to recognize the fact that they're humiliated. They don't want to recognize the fact that they're dependent. That's a very unpleasant thing to recognize. But that's what we've got to move towards. So in that sense, there is a narrative twist there as well. Here's where it gets really complicated. Ukraine cannot make this argument in a convincing way itself. Yeah, it's seen as biased and as having, you know, too many interests at stake. So as Ukraine thinks about these challenges, and this is the, by far and away the biggest one, it has to think about which allies can make those arguments. Yeah, which allies are its partners in these informational framing competitions. They're more about framing rather than just information. The setting of priorities. And that'll take a lot of things. That'll take a reframing exercise to make it very clear that Russia is an abusive partner that we have to cut dependency from, that people in Europe are victims as well. They're not bystanders helping Ukraine. They're also victims of Russia. They just maybe don't want to face up to it. It also take working with many, many powers outside of Europe to create a viable energy security future. So Ukraine can't do this on its own. This is going to take alliances. And, and really what we need, I think, is the equivalent of the sort of Stuttgart cell, which coordinates weapons supplies to Ukraine, which is a, a completely unique instance of Western powers working with a non-NATO military to supply it with weapons and arms and, and intelligence as well. We need something like that in the information environment. Yeah, uh, The Ukrainians can do a lot, but we need this sort of coalition of different skills and leverages and assets to come together in this dynamic. And we can go country by country, narrative by narrative, and really understand who's needed for that solution. I don't think anything like this has ever been done before. I think it's completely new, but that's what we need. And the fact that we've managed to do it in the weapons space encourages me to think that we can also do it in the information space. I really like that comparison, this idea of, well, we were able to pull together an incredibly complex and incredibly diverse array of partners to come together in the military space. And now basically we need to do the same thing on the information side of the equation, which I do believe in some ways is actually harder, right? Because it's less tangible, it's harder to measure. And so, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, what I want to do is I want to get a little bit of a better sense of at least one of Russia's tactics, right? Which is something that you called, I think, censorship through noise. What it does essentially is that in trying to influence the free world, it spreads falsehood. The idea isn't to spread some specific ideology, but to spout so much BS that nobody can know what's true. And so, one, what's your sense of how successful this tactic is and how do you think we can most effectively counter it? So, I mean, look, this is a time on a tactic to, to spread confusion. And it's, it's really, I think, principally something that these regimes do at home. I think talking about, I really don't think that the Kremlin has quite that kind of hegemony to be able to censor abroad. I can confuse, distract. This is actually much more something I think which is domestically very important. It's something we see in many, many countries where regimes realize that they can't control and censor the way they did in the 20th century. So they spread strategic and huge amounts of disinformation to basically block off people's access to information through chaos. So I think that's something that emerges from a sort of new media environment. And we struggle a little bit with it because it's creating new information and more information, more content. And it can be hard to make sense of that legally. You know, what is legally wrong with creating more content? So we always thought about 
what dictatorships do is limit the amount of information, and here they're multiplying it. I still think there's a way of approaching it legally, though. I'd love to see a case in the European Court of Human Rights where, sort of, I don't know, a Russian citizen says, I'm being denied my right to information by the amount of disinformation out there. You know, my government is purposefully creating so much disinformation in a very strategic way that I cannot access the truth. And therefore, that is an infringement of my right to receive information, which is a human right. So I think that's why it's been very confusing, because when the Russian government, Duterte's allies in the Philippines, I mean, it happens, you know, the, the Chinese have their 50 cent army. It happens in every kind of like dictatorship and high regime. It's always been hard to sort of like find a way to battle this because I mean, there is no legal term called disinformation. This is something that we use as a shorthand for all sorts of stuff. But there is no legal term disinformation. So it's been very, very hard to battle this phenomenon because, you know, we've always fought for more information and more content. And here there's more content. So what's the problem? But I'd love to see a case like that at the European Court of Human Rights. You kind of focus that on the domestic Russian information environment, which I think is really important. And, you know, actually, I, I want to get to that in, in a follow up question. But first, you know, I really want to explore this idea of the fire hose of falsehood in the free world, right, where Putin isn't just trying to censor, I think, his own people, which he can do relatively directly, right? I mean, sometimes, I mean, he doesn't need to spread a million different falsehoods. I mean, at this point, he can literally just censor, stop people from using the word war. You know, and if you use the word war, it's 15 years in prison, you have to call it a special operation. But in the free world, what he does instead is, you know, supports a million different versions of the story, many of which are mutually exclusive. It doesn't matter, right? The idea is just to convey this notion that the truth is not knowable. And I think he's actually been very successful in doing that. I mean, I don't have to, at this point, I think, spend too much time talking about disinformation during American elections. But I think it's become relatively common knowledge that Russia has certainly played a role in spreading all sorts of different disinformation in the U.S. And the last thing I'll highlight on that is that he has supported not only, you know, one specific story. I mean, he has literally supported both sides of an argument where, you know, we saw on Facebook the fact that Russian trolls were organizing both a sort of far-right white supremacist protest on the one side and then a BLM counter-protest on the other. And they were kind of behind both. Do you have a sense of how we in the free world counter that, you know, not even thinking about trying to break through Russians' you know, digital iron curtain within Russia itself? I mean, look, you need a full-spectrum response from sort of more sort of negative responses around regulation putting pressure on tech companies to police their platforms better through to counter-narratives and reaching these audiences. At the end of the day, in the unlikened dictatorships, there's only so far that kind of like negative approaches around regulation. And I think we're always uncomfortable about regulating political speech and defensive approaches like fact-checking that there's only so far they can get to. You've got to compete. You know, we're, we live in a world where everybody's competing for audiences. And the Russians are doing what any marketing company does. They identify an audience, find out their vulnerabilities and go for it. So I think the problem is much more kind of like institutional, like who is meant to do this? Whose job is it to do this? It's not in anyone's job description. And the efforts that are made are usually around fact checking, which we know is of limited efficiency. It's not a bad thing, but I mean, the other side aren't competing in facts. So it sort of misses the point. So that's really the issue. I mean, who is going to respond and whose job is it to respond. So, you know, that's something that I think we've already dealt with. I think we're full of very, very bad theory and very, very bad metaphors around the space. We use these 
completely unproven, really mystical notions like the marketplace of ideas, the ideas that like the best information will somehow win out, or that in pluralism, you know, we'll end up with the best information. I mean, our theory of democracy is rubbish, and nowhere is it more rubbish than in information and in the public sphere, which is a term we use without really having investigated how it works. So we're not competing. This is the problem. We're not competing at all. And it's like, you know, we say they're successful. I mean, it's just because they're doing something. We're just not doing anything. And then there's this myth that we've never done anything in this space. And that's utter balderdash. In the Second World War, the British had the political warfare executive. They did everything from really dodgy things like, you know, creating fake Nazi radio stations through to the BBC. But there was an idea that you have to compete in this space. In the Cold War, there was the US Information Agency that did everything from supporting independent media through to, you know, public diplomacy and jazz tours. And again, there's many things about that that one might not like. But the idea that we don't compete in this space is nonsense. What is the truth is that we don't want to admit that there's a war on. We're in denial. We don't want to face up to reality. We are hiding from the 21st century because we had a good end of 20th century. And by we, I mean the collective West. And we are doing everything we can to avoid the challenges of today and future generations will damn us for it. What more could we be doing, right? If you could wave a magic wand and pass either government policy or private sector policy or NGO policy, I mean, what would you have us do? There's also like larger policies beyond the, the information. Is not some ma- I can have a magic wand, but information isn't a magic wand. You know, it's it not how it works. You know, it only works when it comes together with military policy and economic policy and diplomatic policy. And like, you know, there is no magic information source that you can sprinkle on the earth and make things better. I mean, these are political decisions, but with an informational component. So first is admitting the world that we live in, you know, admitting that we are, whether we like it or not, at war and hyper competition in some very, very, very nasty shit with Russia and increasingly with China. That's just the reality we're going to live in. And we've got to start designing our economies, our militaries, and our kind of cultural policy in a way that just bases up to reality because they see themselves in a war with us. That's the way they think about it. That's what they're doing. And at the moment, we just practice sort of unilateral disarmament. And it's hard because we're not going to do what they do. We know what they do. They use all types of nasty economic tricks. Russia uses energy. And then in the information environment, Russia has something which it calls information psychological war, which, you know, we already know the whole armory they have. They have troll farms and state media, which spread disinformation and weird, nasty, malign diplomats pushing very, very, very twisted things at the UN and so on and so forth. They have like a a suite of things that they use for this non-kinetic form of political warfare. We have nothing. So the first thing we need to do is build what I might call a a democratic communications infrastructure. You know, we have to think about how do we compete in this space? We're not going to do what they do. They have troll farms. We have online town halls. They promote conspiracy theories. We'll promote engagement media that strengthens people's sense of civic empowerment, which is really the underlying issue behind conspiratorial thinking. And so on and so on and so on. So talking about having a whole suite of things from public diplomacy, with a maybe a very, very sharp edge through to supporting media in a very, very, very intentional way where it's not just reliant on a completely useless theory of change around a marketplace of ideas, but really thinks about engaging audiences in a very intentional way through to you know better audience analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things, in many ways, they'll run independently because you can't and shouldn't get, I don't know, journalists at Radio Free Europe in line with diplomacy. 
but we have to understand that that is part of our larger sort of information infrastructure. And that has to be empowered. The person who is responsible for that has to be in the situation room, has to be able to walk into the White House and say, we need 5 billion more for this. At the moment, there is no such person. And there's no such investment. But there is some investment, but it's all over the shop. It's built on a development theory of change. Let the thousand seeds be planted. And as democracy takes over the world, they will bloom. I mean, we're just trapped in a mid-1990s nostalgia fest. It's sad, really, I'd say. It is changing. I mean, institutions move slowly. And everybody I talk to privately around the British government or the US government completely gets this. So I think this is just, a, you know, it just takes a long time to build institutions, but we need to hurry. Part of the challenge too, though, which, you know, you hinted at a little bit is that the tactics that the bad guys have to use are very, very different from the tactics that we may necessarily want to use, right? So, you know, I mean, Annie Duke talks a lot about this. One of our board members who's also a poker role champion, how there have been studies indicating that for every emotionally charged word, a tweet is 20% more likely to go viral, right? And if that word happens to be a curse, or if it happens to be something aggressive, you know, that number only goes up. And so if we want to offer some element of like a positive civic identity, it's really hard to go up against the people who, you know, like a lot of the far right who, you know, have been very active on social media. They're able to spread lies. They're able to spread embellishments. They're able to use language without any care in the world as to its veracity or nuance or anything like that. And so for us to counter that, but to do so in anything kind of resembling a nuanced fashion is a really hard challenging thing to do, especially because psychologically humans appear built to be much more responsive to negative messaging, to messaging around threats than we are to positive messaging and, you know, things around inspiration. So I wonder if you've given some thought as to, you know, what type of ammunition we might be able to leverage to try to shift that equation. Yeah, I think this is one of the great, great, great mistakes that really I think academia has a lot to answer for and people like Habermas especially and actually Aristotle let's go back and, and have a good hit at Aristotle one of one of the least helpful philosophers in this area <laughs> this idiotic really truly truly idiotic if you ever worked in media and tv and I worked in entertainment tv for, for ages for many years that was my first career between the wise rational world and the despicable world of the emotion. I mean, only somebody as emotionally stunted as Aristotle could have come up with that. And only people as kind of blinded to the world, a certain type of academic. I, I work in academia, you know, so I'm obviously saying this at the pinch of salt, could have furthered this ridiculous trope. It's not about that. There is no pure rational on the other hand, no logos on the one hand and a pathos on the other. This is not how it works. And we really have to stop thinking about this. It is perfectly possible to do. Everything is about storytelling. Everything is about emotion. Everything is about thinking. These things are not divided. The fact is we're not competing because we're not trying. When this excuse is rolled out, and I'm sure it's not the case of your board member, but when the government rolled it out, it's because they don't want to fund anything. This is just not true historically. This is just not true. You just look at anything from the power of art during Diane Abbas's work during the Great Depression. Come on. In order to launch the New Deal, FDR pulled on the greatest novelists, the greatest photographers of such. So, so this is just utter, utter, utter nonsense. I'm sorry. And historically, utter bunk. And the fact is we don't want to compete. The fact is we're scared to compete. We don't want to own up to the world. We're in denial. This is the problem. Not the fact that you can't use storytelling and emotion for positive aims. I mean, what utter nonsense. Well, I think the argument is that you could use it for positive aims, certainly, but that 
given that the truth is often nuanced, right? It's complicated. It's not as simple as a single story. Although, by the way, one of the reasons arguably that at least some element of a positive narrative around Ukraine has taken hold, at least in the free world, is because the truth is unusually, I think, simple and direct in this instance. You know, it is pretty black and white in a world that's usually filled with gray. But I think most of the time, the truth is more complicated, right? And so I think the challenge here is how do we try to compete by offering a message that's true to the complex nature of reality when our opponents are all too happy to exaggerate and simplify? I think it's another great mistake. We've divided this into a case of truth versus lies and disinformation versus facts, and it's not. I'm sorry. Take the Russian campaign in America. Most of it had nothing to do with disinformation. It was Trump is beautiful. Hillary is ugly. I mean, that's those are subjective huh. things. It's got nothing to do with it. When we look at conspiracy theories, which are the most sort of like evil form of disinformation in a way in that they say horrible things that, you know, about Pizzagate or something. When you actually look at why people believe in them, it's got nothing to do with the lies. Yeah, we're talking about identity, forms of identity. The competition is between aggressive forms of identity, which see enemies everywhere, which are paranoid and destructive, and forms of identity which can help democracy exist by listening to others and being more open. We're talking about psychology and structures of feeling, and disinformation is simply a symptom. You know, People will then, once they have a certain structure of identity, certain type of identity, and I'm using this much more in the way psychoanalysts use the term, not in the way cultural theorists use the term. People will then pull any content, true or false, to make sense of that. I mean, this is, again, a complete misunderstanding of how communication works, that there is some sort of like abstract pool of truth that people access or don't. It doesn't work that way. So again, we're getting the symptoms infused with the causes. And I think as a field, we've slightly been led astray by the overuse of the word disinformation. I have nothing to do with this. Clearly... Mm all sorts of problems with disinformation out there, much more to do with amplification, much more to do with disinformation in the sense of behavior online, the ability to create false bots, false trolls, false websites rather than content. But we've really been led astray by this to making us think that this is about disinformation versus truth. It's not. It's about democratic communication versus totalitarian communication. You know, I recommend everyone to go back and read that Hannah Arendt. And lots of wonderful people who wrote about Nazi and Soviet communications, which are so familiar to what we have now and how they're based around the construction of very, very aggressive models of identity. That's what Fox News do. That's what Kremlin TV does. That's what the Nazis did. If you go back and analyze the structure, it's the same thing over and over and over and over again. What we could maybe think about is there are certain discourses where facts matter and why do they matter? Yeah, why are there certain discourses where evidence is respected more and others where it's not? But again, that's not about the worth of the facts itself. That's about relationships between people. That's about the context of that conversation. And that relationship, I think usually we find that facts matter in a more future-orientated conversation because you need to establish evidence around something you're trying to prove. But again, that's about context. It's not about the content. Yeah. So again, I do think we're at risk of taking a bunch of wrong turns in the way we confront this. The war on disinformation might turn to like the war on terror. You know, it's just like, I know why we're using that term, but once that term becomes institutionalized, where we've just gone on a really stupid tangent. You know, this is a very, I think, different approach to this issue than what I've heard from a lot of other folks in this space. And and it's, I think, a, almost a weirdly more optimistic take because the implication of what you're saying basically is that if we get our heads in the game and we get serious about it, then there are actually very clear, you know, very tangible 
tactics and steps that we can take, not just to, you know, counter, you know, what we might call disinformation, but more importantly, to promote a more positive narrative. You gave the example of Zelensky at Ukraine. I mean, what a clear example of somebody like, you know, who's just doing really good communications. The mighty Russian communications machine was just, you know, destroyed by him. So, you know, the competition for me isn't between truth and lies. There are environments where you can listen to other people where truth can emerge. We're talking about types of conversation where truth can be developed. And that's the sort of thing we do need to think about a lot. How do we create those environments? And what are the contexts where that becomes relevant? So I'm not saying truth doesn't matter, but I'm saying it's much more a symptom of psychological conditions, of cultural contexts, rather than the cause itself. Would it be fair to call it, you know, rather than a conflict between truth and disinformation, more so a conflict of competing identities? I think so. I think I think in a lot of propaganda, it's really become well, models of identity. I think I think that's key. I think that's absolutely key. And you know, the premise of democracy that we can debate, disagree, have antagonisms, have polarization—that's fine. But then, sort of, all kind of like still get along because we believe in a common set of rules. I mean, that premise of democracy really depends on an idea of communication within that democracy, which we sometimes refer to as a public sphere without really thinking about what it means. And I don't think we have thought about what it means. I think we took it for granted, to be honest. And now there's a lot of questions being asked about it. Maybe one way of looking at it, I mean, we live in a world where the competition between ideologies can be a little bit blurred, but there's a competition in communications theories. At the end of the day, democracies are still looking for, at least in theory, an idea of communication where people can disagree, debate, come to conclusions, listen to each other, tell stories, and exist in this sort of thing, which presupposes the idea of a subject that is thinking, that is feeling, that can interact with others. The Chinese and Russian theories of communication are that people are squashed cabbage leaves to be manipulated. Yeah, they have no self. Yeah, the idea that genuine journalism is kind of shocking to many people in the Russian system. They're like, no, 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 there's propaganda, which tells the people what to do and what to think. And then there's secret services. Those are the two things. This idea that media you've invented is a complete myth. Deep down, you're just a bunch of, you know, propagandists working for the secret services. So the idea that there could be like, you know, the sort of constructive chaos is anathema. And the idea is that people are manipulable, that they can be moved around like pawns on a chessboard, and that they don't really have the potential for democratic choice. That's what China is saying. And what China is saying, give us all your data and we will make the choices for you. That's implicit in, in a lot of the Russian thinking and the Russian system. And again, look, of course, it's a very old conversation for those who know the debates in communications theory. This is the debate we were having in the 1920s, you know, between Dewey and Lippmann, who are having exactly the same debate, you know, with Walter Lippmann, this very, very interesting and paradoxical figure in American letters, basically saying, we can't deal with democracy. We can't do it. It's too chaotic. It's too complicated. What we need is a technocratic elite that controls people. The idea that people can debate and come to conclusions, no, they'll always be manipulated by populists. Media always pushes people into false realities. We need an elite that will actually control society. And let's forget about this stupid democratic experiment. While John Dewey, a philosopher at Johns Hopkins University, says, you are right, people are faulty. You are right, people can be manipulated by populists. You are right, we're imperfect. Media is not ideal in communicating reality. But your technocratic elite is going to be a disaster. Yeah, because they're making decisions for people and they don't have 2020 vision either. The only way is having, you know, he's basically calling for like town hall debates all the time and this kind of very robust bottom-up democracy with lots and lots of local media. 
as a way of filtering out information and coming to conclusions and coming to consensus, which is exactly the fights we're having now about how we reform social media and coming back to what would be different to our approach from Russia to China's. I would be setting up at the moment, like lots and lots and lots and lots of online secure town hall debates among Russian diaspora or among Russians inside Russia who are ready to talk. I know that's the safety issues, but those are actually very surmountable to talk about our sanctions regime for Russia, you know, something like that. It's about engaging people rather than trying to manipulate them. So that's the difference, really. So yeah, maybe the great ideological divide nowadays is about communications theory and about the idea of the individual that sits behind that. It makes sense. You started hinting at this a little bit, which is that the situation in regimes such as the Russian regime, the Chinese regime, and so forth, obviously information and access to information plays out very differently. And, you know, something that you and I have spoken about at great length, obviously, because in the interest of full disclosure, you and I are both working on a number of different projects that touch upon this. But, you know, there is sort of this question of, well, how do you actually convey, first and foremost, true information into a regime that has such a tightly controlled information sphere, such as, you know, China and Russia? But more importantly, to your earlier point, not only true information, but information that is more likely to empower an identity that is in some way tied to freedom, right? An identity that in some way opposes the authoritarianism of Putin. And, you know, if we take Russia as our key example, given that obviously that's the country that is sort of most at play, are there any tactics or what are some of the tactics that you think might actually make a difference in influencing Russian public opinion? First, you raise a question of access and delivery. So compared to the Cold War, it's much easier. So I don't think we have any excuses. Telegram, YouTube, still going, satellite television, radio, um, any type of like online sort of gaming sites. I mean, there's a plethora. And we were doing this in the Cold War when there was just shortwave radio. So delivery is not hard. Engagement might be so quite risky for some Russians now. I think up till now it would have been fine. Now we are in a war. So things get tougher in a war. So I think like how much would they be able to go on and, and respond? I, I think we'd have to test the water. But we should have been doing that for the last 30 years. Now we're in a war. Huh. We're in a very, very different situation. We had 30 years to engage Russians and we didn't bother. So delivery, that's much easier than it ever was. Much, much easier. Probably harder in China because, you know, they have their own internet, but, but still. Second is why should they engage? Why should they bother engaging? What's in it for them? And here we get into this much more difficult question is what is the relationship between public opinion and political change in a dictatorship. Because in a democracy, we know, we talk to people, we try to win them over, they vote, something changes. And in a dictatorship, it doesn't work that way. So I think there we're into a much more complicated space. And I think we have to think about short-term things and long-term things. I mean, there's long-term engagement to think about the Russia of the future, you know, because we are going to have to have some sort of Russia of the future. How is it going to work, live at peace with its neighbors? So you want to start modeling that now. There's ideas to create universities offline and online where Russians will learn about their past, taking responsibility for it, how to live at peace with their neighbors, how not to think it's normal to invade their neighbors, how to understand what is a border and how you're meant to respect it. And, you know, really thinking into the future, a bit like Thomas Mann did on the BBC during World War II. He wasn't changing anything inside of Germany. He was trying to imagine the Germany of the future. So that's a long-term project. And that might feel unvital now in a war, but it won't feel unvital when its time comes. So that's one thing. If you're talking about short-term stuff, we're talking about winning a war. It's got nothing to do with, that's a completely different game. Trying to win a war has got nothing to do with making people more democratic. You just win the war. I mean, you can look at what the British did in World War II. 
I mean, it's, it's a completely different game. It's got nothing to do with democracy or public opinion. It's about helping military operations and making sure they're effective or making sure the sanctions are effective. So in terms of winning the war, it doesn't matter what people's values are. The main thing is that they stop the war. So there's short-term and long-term things. You know, you probably wouldn't even talk about values or anything like that. You talk about your savings have gone <laughs> and like these sanctions are serious and you just blown away your kids' futures on the historical fantasias of a stupid old man. You know, you do that. You wouldn't necessarily get into a deep debate about democratic values because that's maybe not what matters during the war. You know, so I would separate those aims. They're very different. So on the sanctions front, right? I mean, you get this... I would say conflict between two different schools of thought. I mean, I think it's relatively obvious on which side I would fall. But nevertheless, I think it's worth discussing. You know, on the one hand, you have a group of people who say, look, we obviously need the strongest possible sanctions on Russia and to some extent on Russians right now. We need to make sure that they kind of feel the pain of this war and therefore are more likely to exert pressure on the top, you know, decrease Putin's war chest to wage this war. And, you know, basically try to just have as much pressure on Russia as humanly possible. And then you have another camp, which kind of makes the argument that, well, these sanctions are actually going to push people closer to Putin. They're actually going to make it less likely for there to be domestic dissent. And take, for instance, the idea of a Russia visa ban preventing Russians from being able to visit Europe. You know, that would only further push people closer to Putin. What is your take on the impact of global sanctions on Russian public opinion? So I deeply disagree here. I don't think the sanctions have been designed for any kind of social effect at all. They would have been done completely differently. I mean, they're designed in a very slapdash way, that's obvious. But to the extent they're designed, it's about economics. We're trying to stop the war machine. We're trying to say, this is going to stop the war machine and bankrupt him. And sorry if there's some collateral damage socially. I think we're only now starting to have the first conversations about okay, what might be the social effects of sanctions? How do we work this? I mean, if their effect was social, then where's the information campaign to push that? No, no, the, the sanctions are done by economists to try to slow down the war economy. There's a big fat hole in the middle called Russia can still export all the oil and gas that it likes. And there's an even bigger gap in the middle called Gazprom Bank, which has made the sanctions into a joke. I mean, you talk to Russian elites and they just laugh. You talk to people in and around the businesses that still deal with Russia, and they laugh at the sanctions. They just sell stuff to Belarus, and Belarus sells it to Russia. They sell it to Turkey, sell it to Russia. At the moment, the sanctions are, you know, they're interesting, and they may well be having effects in things like, you know, secondary parts for cars. I'm not saying they're bad, but overall, Moscow is laughing. Maybe that smile will come off their face soon, but you talk to Russian elites, and they're like, this is your sanctions. A bit like we laugh at their military, they laugh at our sanctions. If anything, we've had the meeting of two incompetencies. You know, the huh. Russian military turned out to be a complete and utter joke. And our sanctions are just like, up their oil and gas revenues. They're like, they have more money than they did before. They're laughing. You know, the Gazprom Bank thing, the fact that the Germans went out of their way to make sure that Gazprom Bank would not be sanctioned. It's a joke. The Russians think they've got Europe in their pockets and that they will break Europe. I hope they're wrong. I hope their hubris is wrong. I hope something fundamental has changed. But at the moment, they've been, the sanctions have been enacted as economic warfare. Okay. An economic special operation. We're not allowed to use the word warfare. And will it work? Maybe it'll start working in the fall. But I remember when they started, everyone saying, oh, June, July, they'll kick in then. And we're way over June, July and nothing's kicked in. Well, something has kicked in, but it hasn't really come through in any major effect. And again, I'm not saying that they won't. They might well do. I don't think we've ever had sanctions like this in a state like Russia. So the whole thing might crumble tomorrow. But at the moment, Russians just think it's a joke. However, 
maybe now we're starting to think about the social effects of sanctions. And the visa debate is one of the first ones where clearly that's social sanctions. That's something else. That is really about thinking about how do you put pressure on society and what does it mean? And I don't think there's any kind of decisions on that because I don't think anybody has a theory of change, not a serious one. I don't think anyone's really, everyone's just guessing and saying, it'll have this effect, it'll have this effect, but no one knows. No one has any sociology to even argue this. And I don't know. I mean, it sounds like Finland and Estonia are just going to do it anyway, by the sounds of things, but we'll see what happens. That kind of leads me to what I think will probably be our last question. How do you measure impact? You know, that's one of the most challenging things that exists in a closed regime. I mean, you know, and you have Levada coming out with any number of, I think somewhere in the vicinity of like 80% of Russians support the war effort or something like that. I mean, how much do you trust those numbers, if at all? And is there a way to measure impact of any of these types of interventions? I mean, on the economic side, I feel like measuring impact is pretty obvious, but, you know, to measure impact on public opinion and on the social side. Yeah, I don't think public opinion, the way we conceive it in the West, is a good model at all. Firstly, you're not meant to have a strong social self in Russia in the sense of that has strong opinions. You're not encouraged to do that in school. You're not encouraged to do that in life. Your job is to adapt, to be a peace plus convenience, to fit yourself around things. The idea that you would have strong opinions and express them is insane. It's dangerous. There's that wonderful poll, it was a qualitative thing that I think Levada did in 2014, when people were asked, do you think there's Russian soldiers in Ukraine? And they were like, do you mean officially? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's a game. Like, like the game is, what are you allowed to say in public? How do you express yourself? I mean, you can't apply Western ideas of public opinion onto the society. That's silly. I'm not saying the sociology is worthless. I'm just saying you can't do those kind of straight lines. Like public opinion has changed and therefore the policy has changed. Having said that, the Kremlin is scared of something. They are, I mean, I think control freaks, and I use that word in a very rigorous way, obviously. But, you know, just with their personal history with Dresden, with the color revolutions, they are very worried about losing control in any way. And so they do monitor public sentiment rather than opinion, weirdly. And I think they care about opinion because they know that doesn't mean anything. They monitor emotions. Their own polling is all about emotions. What are people feeling? Yeah, coming back to our first thing, they don't care about the facts. They know that. The language is worthless. What they want to see is what are people feeling? What is their identity like? What are the levels of resentment? What are the cocktail of emotions? If you look at Kremlin internal polling, four questions of attitude, four pages of feelings. So they're very, very aware of mood, sentiment, feeling, where it can get explosive. Yeah, it's not about ideas or attitudes or any of this sort of bunk that we have in our democracies. It's about the raw emotional and identity structures of the moon. So that they do monitor, that they do care about a lot. And in that sense, I, I mean, it's very hard to prize exactly what is the dynamic, but there is a dynamic between sentiment and political decisions. I mean, it's interesting. They haven't gone for full mobilization. Yeah. They don't want to say it. They don't recruit from the big cities. They recruit from the provinces. This all speaks to people who are actually very scared of losing control. So it does matter. I think us understanding precisely how it matters, we'll only find out from experimentation, probing, exploration, which we can do through many other tools apart from sociology. But you're right, it is difficult in a, in a dictatorship to understand the dynamic because there are no elections around the corner that you're trying to influence. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And we'll only find it by exploring. By the way, I don't think they know. They just know that it can collapse in seconds. <laughs> That's all they know. And in a way, it's afterwards, like a bit like the collapse of the Soviet Union, post-facts, and we'll go, aha, obviously it was this. Huh. 
At the moment, what we have to do is probe, explore, test, be as evidence-based as we can. I don't like the amount of sort of guesswork in our discourse. I think it's a little bit irresponsible. So I don't know if you've been following Twitter today, but it's like people are making these huge statements like, if we ban Russian tourist visas, this is just tourist visas, it'll strengthen Putin. I'm like, why? Are you sure? What are you basing this on? I'm not saying huh. we should do it, but like just the self-confidence that people come out with going, I mean, actually, historically, when you isolate people, they turn against their governments. I mean, look at South African example. So I don't know. Everyone sort of like brings their pet little bias to this. And we do have to start bringing in a lot more evidence. But look, Uri, all of this is not hard in the sense of it's exploratory. None of this happens without political decision making. You know? And really where we're at at the moment is political decision making. What is it that we want? What is our Russia policy? I don't think we have one yet. So you and I can speculate on a million and one complexities and the dynamics between public opinion and political change in Buratia. And it's a fascinating exercise, but nobody in the White House has articulated what our relationship is. They haven't articulated it to the military, let alone us, you know, the people who think about information. The stuff that really matters, they haven't been told to up their production of arms. You know, right. we're providing the Ukrainians with their arms, but we're not building up our own stockpiles. You know, we're not on a war footing. Officially, what is our relationship with Russia? Are we in a war? Are we in hyper-competition? Are we just slightly peeved? You know, until <laughs> the political decision is made, none of the things that we discuss will ever stop. I think in the word of Senator Collins, I think we are deeply concerned. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, so, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, I, and again, I think that's normal. I think the world changed, and we just haven't recognized how it's changed. And that takes time. And that doesn't open overnight. And, you know, look at the start of the Cold War. It takes like almost a decade for us to get our heads around it. It's, it's very hard to turn the tanker of government. You know, it's a huge oil tanker, you know. And, but when it turns, it really turns. And you've got to make sure you're turning it the right way. So I don't want to be like sort of, it's very easy for me to sit in like Chevy Chase and, and throw stones at the White House. But at one point, we're going to have to make some sort of decision. Well, I think this is as good a place to end as any. We don't usually end in a place, I think, of epistemic humility. So, you know, the fact that it seems like that's kind of where we've landed today strikes me as something unique. So, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And so with that, I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple, or whatever podcast player you use. Or you could go to renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Also, please subscribe to RDI at rdi.org. Thank you.